Hello, and welcome to A History of Japan. Season 8, Episode 12, The Rise of the Ming Dynasty. As Togon Khan fled from Kanbalik in September of 1368, he may have convinced himself that this was only a temporary setback. Surely no one could stand against the might of the Mongol Empire. The Red Turbans had merely gotten lucky. Any day now, the tide of battle would surely turn in the favor of the illustrious Yuan dynasty, and he would once more sit upon the throne in Kanbalik and oversee the reconquest of southern China. I have no idea if he harbored such hopes, but if he did, he had little reason to believe they would actually come to pass. The vast UN armies of yesteryear had long since been defeated, and his most trusted generals were either dead on the battlefield or casualties of political intrigue. Toktoa had met with considerable success against the Red Turbans in the early 1350s, so much so that they were nearly eliminated entirely. However, once more, court intrigues would interfere with practical governance. A salt smuggler and pirate named Zhang Shicheng had blockaded the Grand Canal and was preventing grain shipments from reaching the north. Toktoa proposed relocating thousands of farmers from the south to start growing food closer to the north while at the same time assembling an army to rid the Grand Canal of the pirate menace. Preying on the emperor's fears, the empress and some of Toktoa's rival courtiers convinced Togon Khan that Toktoa was only raising an army so that he could topple the government and raise his own dynasty in its place. The emperor ordered Toktoa to be imprisoned, and he was later poisoned. The soldiers who served under Toktoa were very loyal to him, and in spite of the fact that he had ordered them to obey whomever the Khan chose to replace him, Many of them deserted after their commander's removal. In the immediate years after Toktoa's removal and subsequent assassination, the Red Turbans reversed their earlier losses with a vengeance, crossing the Chongjiang River, which you probably know as the Yangtze, and seizing the city of Nanjing in central China. While I described them somewhat briefly in the previous episode, it is worth exploring the Red Turbans in greater detail. The origins of the Red Turbans as a religious movement is found in the White Lotus sect. If you are a fan of Avatar The Last Airbender, I am sorry to disappoint you, but this group has almost nothing in common with the Order of the White Lotus in which Uncle Iroh claimed membership. The White Lotus sect was a syncretic religion mingling elements of Buddhism and Manichaeism to form a kind of semi-dualist hybrid which was looked on with suspicion by many rulers of China, both Han and Mongol. You may remember that Manichaeism was originally a Persian Gnostic religion closely connected with Zoroastrianism. While it had largely been supplanted by Islam in Persia and other parts of the Middle East, it found fertile ground in China for some time, until its followers were targeted by Emperor Wuzong of Tang's great anti-Buddhist persecution of 841, which largely decimated mainline Manichaeism in the Far East. Some of its teachings were adopted by the White Lotus, however, who merged it with Buddhism and met in secret for fear of persecution. 
While many were drawn to the movement because of the religious teachings, some were motivated more by hatred of the Mongols and a desire to overthrow the UN dynasty, whom they viewed as foreign invaders and barbarians. Because of China's vast geography, the Red Turbans were not a unified organization but tended toward regional bodies organized under local leaders. While this gave them an advantage when fighting UN troops in various places throughout the country, it also led to the growth of gigantic egos from the regional leaders themselves. Zhang Chicheng, the salt smuggler I mentioned before, had resorted to banditry after killing a wealthy merchant who had cheated him, but within a few weeks had gathered a thousand plunderers to his banner. When his home community rebelled against UN rule, they chose Zhang Chicheng to be their leader. There are many stories like his, but in the interest of brevity, I will greatly summarize the primary leaders and their general areas of influence and activity. Zhang Shicheng managed to take control of much of the eastern seaboard south of Kanbalik, but also made progress by taking the inland city of Bozhou. He named his dynasty the Zhou State, and later accepted some honors from the UN in exchange for their assistance against his rivals. Controlling a large chunk of land directly to his south was Zhu Yuanzhang, a former Buddhist monk and member of the White Lotus sect, who proved a competent commander and thus rose swiftly through the ranks of a Red Turban army commanded by Han Shantong, who was captured and executed in the early 1350s. Shantong's son, Han Lin'er, was proclaimed the new emperor of a restored Song dynasty, alleging that his father descended from the Song emperors, but Zhu Yuanzhang took control of the army. To the east of the land claimed by the re-emerging Song dynasty, which was called the Wu State, was a red turban faction which called itself the Chen Han dynasty, led by Chen Youliang, who claimed to descend from a Vietnamese noble family, though this claim was greeted with skepticism even during his time. Originally, Chen Youliang followed a man named Xu Shuhui, who had proclaimed himself the emperor of the Tianwen dynasty, but Chen Youliang assassinated him in 1360 and founded his own Chen Han dynasty in 1363. Even further east was the land controlled by Ming Yuzhen, a former follower of Xu Shuhui, who had rejected Chen Youliang's claims to imperial ascendancy, preferring to found his own Ming Sha dynasty instead. However, while the Ming dynasty would rule China after the UN were expelled, Ming Yuzhen is not its founder, and the Ming Xia would eventually be crushed. By the mid-1360s, these four main factions of Red Turban rebels had each gained enough power and independence that they started fighting one another almost as often as they faced off against the UN dynasty. To greatly simplify this power struggle, Chen Youliang and Zhu Yuanzhang and their respective states of Han and Wu faced off in an ultimate naval battle at Lake Poyang. While Youliang's forces greatly outnumbered his Wu state counterparts, Zhu Yuanzhang's navy appears to have been better equipped with gunpowder weapons, which gave them a huge advantage. After a long and bloody battle, Chen Youliang's tower ships, which had catapult-type weapons on board, were charged by fire ships from the Wu Navy, which neutralized them and allowed the Wu to get into closer range with their cannons, fire lances, grenades, and muskets. 
Eventually, the Han Navy was practically crushed and Chen Yuliang was killed from an arrow wound to his head. Afterward, the Han lands were invaded by Zhu Yuanzhang's forces, and in 1365 it had all been practically annexed by the Wu state. After the Battle of Lake Poyang, Zhu Yuanzhang's primary rival was Zhang Xicheng, the smuggler-turned-revolutionary who controlled much of the eastern coast. Zhang Xicheng's blockade against the Yuan dynasty in the mid-1350s had actually resulted in his being offered an official title from them, and thus he allowed the grain shipments to once more travel north to the flagging Mongol leaders. Likewise, he engaged in a provocation against Zhu Yuanzhang, declaring himself to be the rightful king of the Wu state. Zhu Yuanzhang, still acting nominally on the behalf of Han Liner, had taken the title of Duke of Wu, but soon began referring to himself as the King of Wu after Zhang Xicheng had done so. The two had been fighting for about ten years when the capital city of Zhang Xicheng's Zhou dynasty, Suzhou, was besieged by Zhu Yuanzhang's troops in 1367. The siege lasted well into 1368, but when Wu troops breached the city, Zhang Xicheng tried to hang himself but was captured by Wu soldiers and taken to Zhu Yuanzhang. Shortly afterward, he was executed, possibly by being beaten to death. It was around this time that Han Lin Er, the young son of Han Shantong in whose name Zhu Yuanzhang had been acting, died in a drowning accident which is usually assumed to have been anything but an accident. Regardless of how the young would-be sovereign died, it was now up to Zhu Yuanzhang to take an even more direct command of the state as well as the army. After his forces took Kanbalik in 1368, Zhu Yuanzhang declared the mandate of heaven had passed to him, and that he would be the founding emperor of a new dynasty, which he named Ming, meaning brilliant or bright. In choosing an aspirational name for his dynasty, the new emperor was actually following a Mongol tradition, as Chinese dynasties had up until then been named for their founders' home districts. Following the Mongol naming tradition would not be the only way in which the new sovereign of China would mimic the ways of his so-called barbarian predecessors. Zhu Yuanzhang took for himself the imperial name of Hongwu, meaning greatly martial, no doubt to celebrate his reputation as a clever leader and a brave warrior. Shortly after driving the Yuan dynasty out of China proper, he turned his attention to the Mingxia dynasty to his south, and destroyed their last vestiges of resistance in 1371. The new sovereign began his rule over China with a long to-do list, and near the top of that list was cleaning house. Emperor Hongwu abolished the office of chancellor, preferring direct rule to circuitous bureaucracy. He also adopted a series of brutal punishments for officials who were found guilty of corruption, which he hoped would instill a fear of such behavior from their peers. There was undoubtedly an ethnic element to some of Emperor Hongwu's reforms. Officials who were of Mongol or other barbaric lineage were summarily dismissed and replaced with Han administrators. Kanbalik was given a Chinese name you have almost certainly heard before, Beijing, meaning Northern Peace. 
The new capital, however, was set as Nanjing, which was located more suitably near the center of the nation rather than the far north. While the new emperor benefited by projecting the image of restoring traditional Chinese government, he seems to have had a love-hate relationship with Confucianism, by which I mean he loved giving lip service to very selective parts of Confucianism while simultaneously undermining some of its core principles which he judged unimportant. He reinstituted the civil service examination to great fanfare only to later abandon it and then reinstate it once more. He seems to have harbored a deep distrust of Confucian officials and took great pleasure in having the more ineffective Confucians publicly beaten, as well as dismissing those who proved incompetent at their actual jobs. Distrust would prove to be a major feature of Emperor Hongwu's administration, as he no doubt worried over issues of legitimacy. He had no impressive lineage to brag about, and even in his time, people whispered that the timing of young Han Lin Er's tragic death and the emperor's subsequent ascendancy was a little too convenient to have been entirely accidental. And although he had defeated his rivals, he may have had good reason to fear that their former followers might be dissatisfied with his victory. Thus, shortly after his victory at Kanbalik in 1368, he formed the Jinyi Wei, or Embroidered Uniform Guard, as a secret police force to stop sedition before it started. Unlike many secret police organizations, the Jinyi Wei were actually considered part of the military. While it is true that part of their duties was collecting military intelligence, their classification was probably more of a legal consideration than anything else. The Jinyi Wei were allowed to overrule judicial proceedings, detain suspects without trial, and brutally interrogate anyone they chose, as long as the people in question were designated as traitors. His successors would occasionally tinker with the Jinyi Wei's powers, and Emperor Hongwu himself would reduce their authority after an incident in which they arrested over 40,000 people in an alleged plot. However, future sovereigns generally kept the secret police well-staffed, fully funded, and above the law. While the Yuan dynasty had been driven out from China proper, they were by no means destroyed completely. After the flight from Kanbalik, historians refer to the faction led by Togon Khan and his successors as the Northern Yuan. Togong Khan himself died in 1370 and was replaced by his son Bilingtu Khan, who was enthroned in Karakoram. The new Khan acted swiftly, appointing the Mongol general Kokke Temur to be his commander-in-chief. Seeking to eliminate the threat of UN resurgence in China, Emperor Hongwu tried to bribe Kokke Temur into abandoning his sovereign, but the Mongol general abjectly refused. The Ming army raided Mongolia, progressing deep into the north of the country and even sacking Karakoram itself, taking thousands of Mongol nobles as prisoners. Kolke Temur was already a commander of considerable reputation, and he proved his worth in 1372, turning back a Ming dynasty raiding army and inflicting significant casualties. As he continued pursuing this fleeing army, however, they pulled his forces into a trap, and reversed their defeat, routing the northern Yuan army. In spite of this setback, 
Koke Temur may have still been capable of taking the fight deeper into Ming territory, but he died in 1375, and Biling Tukan died shortly after in 1378. The northern Yuan would no longer prove a significant threat to the burgeoning Ming dynasty for the near term. Wanting to follow a Confucian ideal of economy, Emperor Hongwu greatly favored agriculture over mercantile trade. Mindful of how the Yuan dynasty had been starved of vital grain imports, the emperor relocated farmers to unused portions of northern China where they were meant to form self-sufficient farms. The government tried to discourage land speculation on the part of middle-class financiers who were eager to turn a profit as landlords, favoring giving land grants to farmers instead. However, when those farmers fell on hard times due to drought or poor harvests, the moneylenders were ready with available loans for which the land was used as collateral. Gradually, landlords emerged in spite of Emperor Hongwu's best efforts. As regards education, Confucianism was once more given top billing for the most part, but the ancient philosopher Mencius, or Mengzhi, was frowned upon. Mengzhi taught that the people were the most important element of the nation and that the sovereign was the least important, so it's easy to see why he wasn't popular with the Ming dynasty, or indeed with most dynasties. Still, an abridged version of his work was allowed due to lobbying from some of Emperor Hongwu's more important officials, though it did not include the parts about how sovereigns don't matter. The official imperial college, or Guozijian, was relocated to a new campus in the capital, Nanjing. And in addition to its usual curriculum of Confucius and the classics, scholars were also expected to study horse riding and archery. In fact, the civil service examination now included horse riding and archery, and the entire Ming military reconfigured to have horse archery as its central component. It is no coincidence that the Ming army emphasized cavalry-centric tactics and organization similar to the Mongol Empire and Yuan dynasty. In spite of the developments in gunpowder weaponry, which were considerable, well-trained horse archers were still a reliable staple of eastern armies in the 1300s. In fact, the Ming dynasty even recruited Mongols to serve in the army to bolster their horse archery capability. In the realm of religion, Emperor Hongwu largely continued the tolerant policies of the Yuan dynasty, allowing practitioners of nearly all faiths to continue their worship, save one particularly ironic body of believers. The White Lotus Sect and all similar secret societies were banned under Ming rule, although this decision was more likely based on the secretive aspect than any quarrel over doctrine. In a somewhat surprising move, the first emperor of the Ming actually promoted Islam, funding the building of new mosques in several major cities, including Nanjing. Emperor Hongwu himself wrote a poem called The Hundred Word Eulogy, praising Islam and the Prophet Muhammad. Chinese Muslims, especially including the Hui people, generally prospered during his reign and throughout the period of the Ming dynasty itself. In the area of foreign relations, Emperor Hongwu struck a surprisingly anti-imperial tone, in part by making a list of 15 countries which the Ming dynasty would not and should not attempt to conquer, including Taiwan, Vietnam, and Japan. 
when the nation of Champa in northern Vietnam requested aid against the Dal Viet in the south, Emperor Hongwu sent only a sternly worded letter to the southern kingdom, but dispatched not even a single soldier to aid the Champa. The court also sent messages to the Byzantine Empire and communicated with the Catholic Church, favoring Western Europe's genre of Christianity over the Nestorian variety which was associated with the Mongols. This is not to say that every nation was safe from raids and invasion from the Ming dynasty. Early on, Manchuria in the northeast remained in the hands of UN partisans, but after the Battle of Jinshan and the follow-up Battle of Bure Lake, the land of the Jurchens was at least nominally under Ming control. Though they only enforced taxation very gradually over the next several decades for fear of revolt. Hongwu's successors would involve Ming China in wars along the northern border, especially in the 1400s when the northern Yuan suffered decentralized splintering, which Emperor Yongle saw as a weakness which he could exploit. He even personally led an expedition into Mongol lands which was extremely successful. Emperor Yongle was another towering figure of Ming Dynasty history who looms almost as large as Emperor Hongwu, his father. He did not share his father's distaste for invading certain neighbors, however, and took it upon himself to annex northern Vietnam into the Ming Empire. He also pursued wars against various Mongol factions and actually died on the campaign trail while pursuing Mongols from the Oirat tribe, possibly the result of a stroke. In spite of its founder's dislike of commerce, the Ming Dynasty became a mercantile powerhouse. Emperor Yongle famously commissioned Admiral Zhang He to undertake several treasure voyages to both nearby maritime neighbors and factions much further away. Some of the vessels in these fleets were very large for boats of their day and were called treasure ships, as their primary goal was to bring treasure back to China. These voyages were diplomatic in nature, and Admiral Zhang He would bring fine ceramics and other trade goods to exchange with the factions he visited for their own treasures of equal or greater value. As a side note, if you google these voyages, you may come across the fringe idea that these treasure voyages actually struck far enough east to visit the Americas in the early 1400s. While this intriguing idea certainly sells books, there's no evidence that Admiral Zhang He visited Native Americans on these voyages, much less circumnavigated the entire globe, and such theories are without historical foundation. Although it was not part of any massive treasure voyage, the Ming Dynasty did maintain normal diplomatic relationships with Muromachi Japan, and they exchanged gifts in a tributary fashion. Ashikaga Yoshimitsu in particular enjoyed correspondence with Emperor Yongle, and we will further explore the implications of some of those correspondences a few episodes from now. In addition to their friendly diplomatic purpose, the treasure voyages were also meant to establish a tributary relationship between Ming China and the nations which Admiral Zhonghe visited. Whether this was fully understood by the nations who traded with this treasure fleet is a matter of historical debate, but certainly Emperor Yongle could use his alleged political domination of so many other nations as part of his propaganda with the people. 
He had, after all, muscled his nephew out of the throne by force and claimed the mantle of his father, Emperor Hongwu, in an armed overthrow. He grabbed every shred of legitimacy that he could find. Another source of legitimacy for Emperor Yongle was the Grand Canal. As we discussed in the previous episode, the Grand Canal had fallen into disrepair during the latter days of the Yuan Dynasty. By Emperor Yongle's time, it had fallen into total disuse, and when his regional magistrates complained of how inefficient grain transport had become, he ordered that the canal should be completely renovated. Through the efforts of over 150,000 laborers in the years between 1411 and 1415, the canal bed was dredged and new channels excavated where necessary along with reservoirs built to feed the great artificial river. New canal locks were installed which helped preserve the water level while also allowing canal workers to raise or lower those water levels to accommodate various craft. Emperor Yongle also moved the capital from Nanjing to the city formerly known as Kanbalik, which was now named Beijing. The palaces of the Yuan dynasty which formerly graced that city had been burned down in the wake of the Ming victory, and in the area where those palaces had stood, Emperor Yongle ordered a new imperial palace complex to be built. The ensuing construction project took 14 years to complete, and required the labor of a 100,000 artisans as well as at least a million workers to erect. Built of stone and timber, the new palace complex was an awe-inspiring collection of mansions, ceremonial chambers, and grand halls. It is referred to today as the Forbidden City, and it would generally serve as the headquarters of imperial governments in China from its completion in 1420 until 1912. In its early period, the Ming Dynasty was at the cutting edge of gunpowder technology and weaponry. A military treatise originally written in the 1370s called Huolongjing, or the Fire Dragon Manual, was an illustrated guide to the various forms of gunpowder weaponry which had evolved since the late 1200s. In it one can find images of multi-stage rockets, fire lances, primitive grapeshot cannons, rocket arrows, land and sea mines, as well as a host of other terrors of the 1300s. It is clear that Emperor Hongwu's successors understood the value of gunpowder weaponry and the specialized troops which were needed to wield them. Emperor Yongle is credited with the formation of the Shenji Ying, or Divine Machine Battalion, which was an elite division of the military who were trained with muskets, fire lances, rockets, and other gunpowder weaponry. The Ming Dynasty would continue its upward trajectory in the years ahead as future sovereigns would expand their influence through trade, patronage, tributary relationships, technology, and even craftsmanship. Next time, we will discuss the Goryeo Dynasty of Korea and its subsequent collapse in the face of Yuan Dynasty disintegration and learn about the successor dynasty who would rule Korea for hundreds of years after. Until then, thank you for listening. If you would like access to exclusive bonus episodes, as well as ad-free versions of the regular episodes, please consider supporting this podcast at patreon.com slash ahistoryofjapan. Thank you.